Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show Welcome to this uh, Friday, end of the week edition of the Dan Prof Show, and uh, perhaps the most obsequious comment in review of the transition of power of the week, and this is really saying something because there was a lot of competition, came from MSNBC's John Heilman. Listen to this review. The thing that was, to me, so striking about today was that kind of comforting sense even with the masks, even with the distancing, even without the crowd, you know, those shots inside Statuary Hall that we're familiar with, you know, from every inauguration, the, the, the sight of uh, the Clintons and the Bushes and the Obamas, you know, the, the Avengers, you know, sort of the <laughs> Marvel superheroes back up there together all in one place well, with their friend Joe Biden, all of them, I think, feeling like that, that all of them sharing that same view that a lot of Americans had, which is that, you know, we did narrowly avert catastrophe in America and that they were all there to kind of, you know, kind of to buttress their buddy Joe Biden and see him in some ways as the as the natural and necessary corrective to what's been going on. All our heroes, Marvel superheroes, the Obamas, the Bushes, the Clintons, narrowly averted disaster, all coming together to support their chum, Joe Biden, and reestablish the way things should be. All our heroes are back. And that certainly includes Tony Fauci who uh, took to the dais uh, by himself for the first time uh, and commented on the difference between the two administrations that he's experienced in just the last couple of days. No, actually, I mean, I mean, obviously, I don't want to be going back, you know, over history, but it was very clear that there were things that were said, uh, be it regarding things like hydroxychloroquine and other things like that, that really was an uncomfortable because they were not based on scientific fact. I can tell you, I, I take no pleasure at all in being in a situation of contradicting the president. So it was really something that you didn't feel that you could actually say something and there wouldn't be any repercussions about it. The idea that you can get up here and talk about what you know, what the evidence, what the science is, and know that's it. Let the science speak. It is somewhat of a liberating feeling. I mean, you were basically vanished for a, for a few months uh, there for a while. <laughs> you feel like you're back now? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> He's back, baby. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, thanks for joining us. All our heroes are back. Happy days are here again. That's it. The uh, the swamp is uh, topped up right to the brim, ready to overflow. It was the most complacent spectacle I've seen in, uh, in Washington, D.C. in the last five years. All, you know, McConnell and Pelosi, all of them patting each other in the back and complimenting each other. Of course, the three presidents that, the three exit presidents that were mentioned were at Trump's inauguration, too, as was President Carter. But, uh, but I, I, I accept that um, Trump's outside that comfortable bipartisan back rolling, back scratching, I should say, log rolling uh, fraternity or sorority that operates. 
much of the time in the U.S. Capitol, which was the reason Trump was elected in the first place, because that very comfortable, clubbable, uh, mutually supportive bipartisan group that alternated the White House every eight years but left practically everybody else the same, um, they they uh, they did give us the Iraq War and the greatest economic uh, crisis for the whole world in the last 80 years, and they did sit there like suet puddings while the Chinese <laughs> ran up the backs of the Western world with golf shoes on, uh, dumping manufacturers, cheating on their currency, and intimidating their neighbors. And uh, But it didn't matter. In Washington, everything was going well, and they were all taking good care of each other. And then that's, that may be what we have back. I, I have to take exception to one thing you said. Um, that clip you put on was nauseating, of course, uh, you know, as if, the, as if the country survived this this horrible existential crisis because elected Trump as president, but in fact, he, he did accomplish a great deal, as even his sober audience acknowledged. I thought the worst example uh, of, of media partisanship was Chris Wallace saying, I've heard every presidential inaugural address starting with John F. Kennedy in 1960, and this was the best of them. It wasn't. I mean, it was, it was a perfectly nice speech as far as it went. It, yeah. The spirit of reconciliation was nice. But what Chris Wallace was really saying was, I hated Trump so much, I, I was just bursting with my irrational, psychotic hatred of Trump that I am prepared to sit here and po-facedly tell the American public that the pastiche of platitudes we just heard is the best inaugural address in 60 years. <laughs> pastiche of platitudes, I like that. Uh, well, and, and let's not leave out Tony Fauci. I certainly want you to comment on him because it seems to me a proper follow-up would have been, oh, okay, uh, so um, Trump said some things that weren't correct and you didn't tell us what you knew to be true because you didn't want to face political repercussions. So I'm sorry, what, what, what do we know about you now? Now you're you you subordinate the truth to your uh, to keeping your post. Uh, do you have a duty to the truth as a public health professional, or do you have a duty to uh, back the play of whoever the president is? Well, we're not just not just that, that Dan. I mean, he he moved, he faced in all four directions on everything. Uh, I, I mean, you know, masks didn't matter. Then masks were, had had to be worn at all times, even in the Grand Canyon, as, as Trump said. Uh, I, I mean. Uh, look, I don't doubt that Fauci is an extremely competent uh, specialist in public health matters, and, and uh, he's certainly an agile politician. He's been there for 40 years under a lot of different administrations of both parties, uh, and, and he's a well-spoken man. And in general, when he speaks, you, you, you know that, that he does know a lot about what he's talking about. But uh, what he should have said is, look, I'm not getting into comparisons. I'm happy to serve. I've served eight or nine presidents, whatever it is. I'm happy to have served all of them, and, and uh, I'm happy to serve this one, but I'm, I'm not going to disparage anyone who isn't, uh, who isn't in the administration now. And, and that would have been the correct answer. But, but, uh, oh, the incentives know, to pile on are just too, too much, too overwhelming. It's just, it's just too attractive a pile to jump on, to not I, jump that on. That I understand, but a, 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 a bigger man, I don't mean physically, obviously, I mean, a, a, a yes. man of greater strength of character would have would not have been drawn into that. It's not a partisan position, and he shouldn't make it one. Uh, so we uh, learned today that Nancy Pelosi will deliver the article of impeachment uh, 2.0 to the Senate on Monday. So we're not going to wait till February, as Mitch McConnell had had requested. Um, what do you see happening in uh, impeachment 2.0? Uh, I think it is the stupidest, most fatuous legislative initiative in the entire history of the United States. 
it, it was rushed through on no evidence, no due process, no witnesses, nothing, on a straight partisan vote with 10 Republicans, only 10, 197 voted against. Um, and uh, it is clear from listening to the president he didn't incite violence. It is clear from anyone who knows the meaning of the word insurrection, which is the attempted violent overthrow of the government. That's what Mr. Lincoln declared in 1861 when 11 states purported to secede from the country. This was not an insurrection. It was an act of vandalism, trespass, assault. It was a crime, but it was not an insurrection. And and uh, so the the charge made is false in itself. The allegation against the former president is false. Uh, and the the information released by the FBI on those that they've charged in the affair uh, have so far uh, indicated no connection whatsoever to an originating act or utterance by President Trump or the Trump campaign. So we have no due process on a spurious charge with a false allegation for which there is no evidence claiming something that did not happen in order to remove from office someone who at the constitutional fiery of his term has gone from that office. It is the dumbest, stupidest thing I, I've ever seen in U.S. government. And, and it, with all due respect, there have been some challenging contenders for that title, uh, over, as in any country. But, but the, it, it, just to get to the practicalities of it, if, if either the Democrats or the Republicans touch this one, it's going to blow up in their faces. There is no chance of a conviction. There's no chance of over 17 Republicans deserting anything like this. I suspect what will happen is that McConnell and Schumer, with Biden quietly urging them on, or perhaps publicly urging them on, will, will change it into a, some kind of uh, uh, watered-down censure motion that both houses can vote on if they want, and the Democrats would probably get it through by a slight margin. But uh, uh, basically a motion of retroactive criticism and drop it at that. If they actually, if, 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 if failing that, I think McConnell will make a move not to receive the, the, the charge. And, and Senator Robert Byrd did that with the Clinton impeachment thing, but he missed it by two votes. He was in the minority then. Uh, if they actually go to trial it, it, uh, in the Senate, it will be a complete fiasco. There's no chance of a conviction, and it will be seen as, as, as just a boring dragging back of the conflicts of, uh, of the previous administration and the previous campaign. It's just a, a rank partisan exercise, and any Republican who shows any support for it is dead politically. He is Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure's mine. Take care. No time for a summer friend. No time for the love you send. Seasons change and so did I. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, switching gears from the uh, national a conversation with Conrad Black about uh, impeachment 2.0 and the return of our heroes, quote unquote, to uh, the local that has national implications, a local example of a national phenomenon. And as per usual, if it's a local example as quintessential of a national phenomenon, 
and it's a bad example of a bad phenomenon, you can expect Chicago or someplace in Chicago land to be at the tip of the spear. And so is the case with defunding the police, the intersection now or intersectionality of defunding the police and Black Lives Matter. Uh, Dateline Oak Park, Illinois. Oak Park, uh, the birthplace of Ernest Hemingway. But I don't think that's something they celebrate anymore. I don't think Ernest Hemingway would be welcome in his hometown today. Also, a community that is so granola, uh, you know, with filled with 60s Woodstock refugees, that in the 80s, during the Reagan administration, they declared Oak Park a nuclear-free zone, wanted to give a clear message to the Soviet Union that uh, you were not to strike the U.S. in Oak Park, off-limits, because they're uh, peaceful dissidents of uh, a warmongering Reagan. So just to give you a backstory, this is uh, a long run-up, so you can understand how today in a nation beset by identitarian politics, Oak Park is one of the worst examples going. And also, we brought you Oak Park before. A year and a half ago, Oak Park again, leading the way for local governments. Per this exchange between village trustees over the diversity statement, there's just a resolution to pass, you know, a pro forma virtue signaling diversity statement for the village. And uh, there was some questions asked about the diversity statement. And this was a good indicator of how it works with the identitarian left. You don't ask questions and they will not entertain questions because to entertain questions is to suggest that there are legitimate areas of pushback to what they're doing. And there are no legitimate areas of pushback. There is no question that is legitimate. You are to accept and only ask, may I lead the celebration? That's the only question that is inbounds. So back then, 18 months ago, it was this hysteric named Susan Buchanan excoriating fellow board members for daring to suggest some friendly amendments to the diversity statement because they're the worst of all things, the white heterosexual male. Yeah, I... I... I don't want to hear what you have to say. Oh, my gosh. No, Come I'm on. serious. Susan. Jim, why do you Come have on. an opinion on this? Come on, Susan. Susan, this is... I won't say a word. That's why I like to... You shouldn't have an opinion on I that. Read this with is the I met with constituents of color, and quite honestly, on some of the feedback was that some of this wording was ridiculous. No, birth. You have been white from birth. Why are you arguing what is a system of oppression? You've never experienced one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So shut up! Uh, I don't want to hear from you. Just stop! Just stop, Dan. Stop, Dino. You are not oppressed. And I'm, people in Oak Park are. And we are trying to recognize that as a community. Mm-hmm. This mayor and this board is obviously not willing to face history. We have a chance to make history. It is time. For this community. Very Khrushchevian um, beating of her shoe. Equity. Yeah. Enough. And you stop it. You are a white male. I, you true. stop it. You are a white male. <laughs> Your skin stop. is light enough. I'm stop not, it. I got I think if we um, reduce these conversations to 
nobody cares what you have to say because you're a white male, I, I, I don't think we're doing this right. Well, that's the way we're going to do it. Uh, by the way, the mayor of Oak Park is of Palestinian extract, also not black enough, according to white girl Susan Buchanan. Well, uh, the Ingalls to her marks is another trustee named Artie Walker Petakotla. And uh, she took to the interweb to weep about an advisory referendum that has been advanced for the spring ballot for local elections that would ask the village of Oak Park, the residents, whether or not they should defund their police department. Oh, you thought defunding the police was over in a Biden administration? No. Now that Trump's gone, no more defunding police? No. It's going on. She didn't want the referendum question because she's a supporter of defunding the police. You follow? It's a little bit counterintuitive. You would think, oh, the people that want to defund the police, let's put a ballot question on there. Let's whip the public support. And then we'll have that in our our quiver to say uh, this is on target. We have popular support for defunding the police. But no, no. To question whether or not defunding the police is a good idea and to put that to the unwashed masses, nonetheless, even in leftist Oak Park. That is to advance the flag of white supremacy. Listen to the good trustee, Artie Walker Petakotla. It is really hard to take attack after attack and not take it personally. When you put defunding the police on the ballot for a survey question, you're really asking the community, do you agree with Black Lives Matter or not? Do you agree with the movement for Black Lives? That's what you're really doing. And it's really hard for me to sit here and listen to people say, well, why do you not have any problem with this? Because the intention of this issue must be questioned. You all are so scared to just have a conversation when people's lives are at stake. And I am unable to hold my emotions on this anymore. This is ridiculous. And you should vote no on it. I remember what we talked about yesterday. The emotional histrionics as an anchor to conflate issues, as the way to sentimentalize yourself past the merits of the underlying question or issue. Shall the village of Oak Park defund its police department? An advisory referendum question draws that response from that trustee. That's where things are at. And by the way, if you think this is limited to Oak Park any more than the critical race theory instruction we that, that's used to indoctrinate teachers so they can turn around and indoctrinate students that we've talked about from Springfield, Missouri to suburban Chicago to all over the place. There is no geographical limitation to this. The conversation we had earlier in the week with Mark Pulliam li- living in a 70 percent Donald Trump county in East Tennessee, but looking at his cultural and civic institutions and the disconnect between what is being extolled and taught in those institutions as compared to what the prevailing opinions of the residents are and the families there. As a uh, professor of uh, anthropology emeritus, Philip Carl Salzman writes at uh, mindingthecampus.org. He uh, used to teach at McGill up in Canada. How are you enjoying the cancellation of your individuality, capabilities, achievements, and potential, and your reduction to a cipher in racial, sexual, sexuality, and ethnic census categories? What can we call the flipping of one kind of racism and sexism to its opposite, 
but corruption of our ideals and institutions. What can we call it indeed other than that? This is Dan Proff. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and the question as to what to do with big tech. Is there um, a regulatory framework that is consistent with conservative free market oriented principles, but addresses some of the excesses, particularly in the area of viewpoint discrimination of the big tech companies in the wake of the purging we've seen going on over the last several weeks? Well, much longer than that, but perhaps most pronounced in the last uh, couple of weeks after what occurred at the Capitol, the uh, rioting that occurred at the Capitol on January 6th. Very good interview over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal, getting uh, input from famed law professor Richard Epstein. We talked a little bit about it with uh, the Mercatus Center's Adam Thierer, and uh, now we're pleased to be able to talk to the man himself about uh, his thoughts on it, Richard Epstein. He is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU Law School and a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Professor Epstein, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, it's always my pleasure. So um, the idea of treating big tech companies like common carriers, like railroads or public utilities, explain why you think that is a path forward. First of all, one has to understand the old scheme of regulation in order to understand the new one. And the basic point is a common carrier in the pure case is somebody for whom there is no alternative service. Now, this system of rate regulation started in very simple context. Um, and then the question is doing the rates. When you get to big tech, um, it's a somewhat different problem. You're not worried about rates because most of them offer their services for free. It's clear that none of these particular companies have a monopoly in the sense that they're the only one who supply information. But if you kind of look at the distribution, what you see is there may be three or four of these common carrier type operations that transfer the bulk of the information. And the word non-discriminatory, which started with respect to rates, you can't play favorites, seems to apply to this particular point. And so this is not necessarily that they're government actors, although some people have claimed that. What it is is that given their power, the non-discrimination view is affect the appropriate one. Wouldn't they argue, though, that uh, per your uh, comparison to the common carriers, all we're doing is eliminating the scoundrels? Uh, we're not, uh, you know, the, the people that are... Ah, uh, yes. Right? Yes, well, the answer is, that's the question. Are the people who are being thrown off the networks like the drunks who try to get on the airplane is the simplest way to put it. Right. And the answer is no, they're doing much more than that because what has happened is they've taken the notion of defamation or fraud and the notion of coercion and extended them to simply unacceptable levels. So if you hear somebody like... A Twitter saying, well, or Facebook saying, we're not going to give anybody the right to express something on healthcare policy, COVID policy, unless it's consistent with what the WHO is. What you're doing is you're completely upending the system. The whole point of a free system is you have people in authority and learned people are allowed to disagree with them. And if what you do is you silence their voices, you're giving exactly the right. You should be able to ban somebody who's going to say that snake oil would call, kill cancer. But I think in areas which are contested and subject to serious discussion, it's utterly improper uh, to ban these people. And then you get to somebody like Donald Trump, 
And the man was, you know, a person unto himself, and he said many things that are not only regrettable but indefensible. But here there's a question of proportionality. And my sense is that they wanted to shut down that tweet, they wanted to remove that tweet, they'd probably be within their rights. Uh, but if they wanted to say you can't say anything about anything for the rest of your life, then it seems to me that they're denying him access. Uh, well, the argument goes, well, they're conservative networks that you could put up. There's Gab, there's Paul. But one of the things that we've discovered is that the people who control the dominant networks also control the app stores and the applications and all the various linkages so that these guys have a very, very hard time getting started. And so if you're talking about an industry with three or four dominant players, which is the kind of operative definition of what counts as a monopoly today, and you've got Gab with 1% and Parler with 2% and so forth, those are not effective alternatives unless they can grow themselves. Hopefully, they will be allowed to grow themselves, but ironically, they're stopped by the very companies whose dominant position is in operation. And so what you need to do is essentially say they can only kick people off for cause, and cause has to be narrowly defined. It has to be overtly defamatory of somebody, or it has to be palpably coercive. And then the remedy has to be narrowed so that you can't ban somebody for life or for a very long time because of one indiscretion. I, I mean, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, although I voted for him uh, in this last time, uh, but 80 million people want to listen to him, and the idea that you can shut him off while Joe Biden gets a free audience is exactly what we don't want in this world. And given their dominant position, we should do it. When you call somebody big tech, which is the word that you were using, big oil and so forth, uh, there's always a little bit of demagoguery in there. We don't like these people, so we'll just blast them. But there's also an implicit public regulation uh, that the industry concentrations are high enough uh, that the, quote, competitive processes may not work as well as they do under other circumstances. Uh, First best wait, solution, wait, wait. to be perfectly clear, just uh, one what? sentence. Okay, go ahead. The first best solution is to encourage new entry so you could avoid some of these difficulties, but that doesn't seem likely today. Uh, so when we come back, I want to explore uh, whether or not we can get around the predicate question of whether or not there are monopolies. Uh, more with Professor Richard Epstein, who is a Hoover Institution Professor of Law, NYU Law School, Senior Lecturer, University of Chicago. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor Richard Epstein, Peter and Kirsten Bedford, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch, Professor of Law at NYU Law School, Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago as well. We're discussing his sort of common carrier concept for regulating. Uh, the dominant tech companies. I don't want to call them big tech. I want a demagoguery. But um, but I, you know, I, I take the the point that we left off of last hour. What about the idea of treating the big tech companies? There I go. Um, these marketplaces as a lunch counter rather than as a common carrier. So you don't have to get into the question of whether or not they're monopolies. You just say these are public places of accommodation, and those they need to abide uh, anti discrimination law just like the lunch counter does. Well, it turns out I'm not a fan of the anti-discrimination laws applied to lunch counters or anything else. Um, indeed, one of the great difficulties with respect to the civil rights laws is that the anti-discrimination norm that they start to develop was originally done in response to common carriers, and then what it does is it gets extended to competitive industries. And the real danger of doing this is that these kinds of activities of regulating companies are presumptively a bad, and you have to have some good reason to do it. If there are many, many places 
places that you can go to hear, I'm not in favor of the regulation. So to give you an illustration, uh, you take a guy like Josh Hawley, who gets into trouble on the Senate floor, and Simon and Schuster decides to pull his book. Mm -hmm. That may be a breach of contract action, but I think it would be dangerous beyond belief to say that every publishing company in the United States has to publish a title they don't want. And what happens is Regnery comes along and says, we'll publish that book. And then they write a little piece in the Wall Street Journal, and Hawley gets more publicity. So when you've got lots of alternatives, you don't want to do that. And going back to the race question, I've never been in favor of the Civil Rights Act insofar as they apply to competitive employment markets. Uh, one of the things that happens when you try to do that is you kill off all sorts of affirmative action programs with your colorblind principle, and you also create this huge government bureaucracy which is going to tell everybody what kinds of things you have to provide us to see whether or not you're hiring the right people in the right kind of way. So I'm, I'm willing to bite this particular bullet and to say I'm not going to flinch when you throw the race card or the sex card in my direction. I think, in effect, that these industries run quite well by themselves. And indeed, if there's any problem that one has with an industry today, uh, is that if anything, they bend over in the other direction and they're so, as it were, woke in the way in which they deal things, that their overt discrimination is against the very groups who are thought to be in some sense dominant, but really are not. So um, I think the lunch counter example goes exactly the opposite way. So then you go to the Southern case, and I think it's important to do that. Why is that different from a lunch counter today? Because if somebody sat down at a lunch counter and tried to integrate it, they'd be shot by the KKK or the local police. So the original justification for the civil rights law was when you have a corrupt state government and all sorts of informal illegal professions, then you basically have to put a non-discrimination rule in place. And in fact, who was in favor of the rule of time? It was like companies like Howard Johnson saying, we can't operate in the South if we can't run an integrated fashion. And if you don't protect us from Southern goons, uh, we are basically going to shut down. So the anti-discrimination norm in these businesses is the second best solution to getting rid of corrupt local institutions. Those problems are by and large passed. And so the general norm that these are competitive industries should apply, and there should be no anti-discrimination law. And the lunch counter example is no longer fraught with the terrible overtones that it had in the 1950s and 60s. It's a very different proposition today. So is this uh, so uh, I, I recall your book from about 25 years ago, which is really when I started to get um, 28 years ago. Yes. Forbidden ground. No. Uh, six simple rules for a complex world. Oh, that's 1975. It's 25 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of simple rules for a complex world. Yeah, and, and in that, um, you talked about, you essentially outlined uh, the, the rules uh, for free exchange <laughs> in a free society. You said sometimes, you know, there is uh, the need to interfere with person and property. Uh, there's a rule of necessity. Mm -hmm. And you gave the example of a man dying of thirst who's offered water by its owner for a million dollars. And, mm -hmm. and, and I wonder if, it is, uh, you know, it's not exactly, it's not quite on point, but does the rule of necessity apply here to these tech companies? Is that what you're getting at? Um, you know, you know, it's the exact right question. Necessity is like the extreme case of the only single supplier. And the general rule has always been if you need a dock and he wants to keep you off, you can actually use force to get on the dock. But if you damage it um, when he lets you on, you have, if you're able, after the fact, to pay compensation. So the necessity cases are, are the imminent peril of life and limb, and these cases are weaker. Uh, and necessity is an extreme version of the monopoly problem, and of course the holdout potential is much greater. Generally speaking, a monopolist, when they go into a market, tries to get a 15 to 20% improvement over the competitive rate. But if somebody wants to get a bottle of water and they're dying of thirst, and the market price is, you know, uh, 
$2, it turns out they'll pay $2 million if they have it to get it. So you could see what the situation was. And again, those rules have been very well established. The most important institutional arrangement is what they call maritime savage. And there's an 1856 case called Jones Post Against Jones. And what happened is somebody was stranded at sea, and the guy says, we'll tow you back for a bloody fortune. What they do is they agree to the contract, get towed back, then say, look, it should be repudiated, and the Supreme Court, in a very learned opinion, surprisingly sophisticated, upheld the contention that they had to be reduced to competitive rates. And now, in that whole industry, since you've got terrific communications, all you need to say to somebody is, I'll give you a Lloyd, i.e., an arbitration to figure out what a just and reasonable compensation is, and you could go ahead with your business without trying to nail out terms. So, uh, good communications can easily overcome various kinds of contracting and monopoly problems. Unfortunately, in the tech industry, uh, things are going in reverse. And this is not a question of figuring out what the knowledge base is. It's a question of getting these companies to decide that they can't do this. So you listen to Jack Dorsey. I mean, it's like a comedy. The man on the one says, I know I'm doing something stupid, but I'm going to do it anyhow. And nobody can question him. And the best explanation that I've heard about why he acts in such a strange way is his employees are very strongly left-wing, and he's afraid of losing them, so he has to denounce Donald Trump. And I don't think that employees at uh, Twitter or Google or Facebook should be able to determine policy in this particular fashion. And so that's why I'm doing this. I, I want to tell you I feel comfortable for two reasons. There are libertarians who say these are private businesses. Please don't bother me with right. your fancy theories. Right. And there are other people who say these are obviously government agencies because they're in collusion with the government. They get protection under Section 230 of the Decency Act and so forth. Regulate them away. And I'm trying to figure out how to steer an intermediate course I think it's possible, and I would hope that some state legislatures or even the Biden administration would look at this seriously. When we come back with Professor Richard Epstein, I have a quasi-legal, quasi-philosophical question from him, thinking about uh, the life work of Milton Friedman. I'll pose that question to Professor Epstein, professor of law at NYU Law School, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, right after this. Love Show.com. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor Richard Epstein. He is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, professor of law at NYU Law School, and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Let, let me ask you a quasi-philosophical, quasi-legal question. Uh, you know, sort of, sort of thinking about Milton Friedman's free to choose. Uh, are mm-hmm. we are free people free to choose to be beholden to big tech companies? No, I mean, look, one of the things that's clear about all monopoly cases is consent to an agreement that's offered to you by a monopolist is not a valid defense against the suit. And that goes back to the old rules on duress of goods. So I don't know if you remember this, but I'm a Roman, Roman lawyer by training, and the, the hypothetical that the Romans gave is, I give you my dress to clean, and you agree to a price of $10. I come to pick it up, you say the price is now 15 And I agree to pay the 15 and then get it. Can you plead the consent when I come back to get the overcharge? And the answer is no. Because otherwise what happens is the entire system of contractual integrity can always be 
overcome by these opportunistic breaches. And that's exactly the same thing with the antitrust law. The standard plaintiffs in antitrust law are those people who have actually purchased the goods. And what they are entitled to do is to get some kind of a payment for the overcharge. They're complicated issues as when they have long chains of distribution as to which particular party in the chain gets the overcharge back or not, but nobody doubts that that's the principle. And let me just mention to you something about Milton, because I think it's important to know his intellectual frame. He came of age in the 1930s, and what he saw was government agency after government agency imposing cartel-like arrangements on industries that could be competitive. And so agriculture becomes a uh, cartelized industry. Labor becomes a cartelized industry. The CAB does it to the airlines. The motor vehicle acts does it to the road traffic. Roosevelt was the world's cartel meister of the worst order. And he figured out that he create uh, monopolies like this or cartels. They're inefficient to produce and they're costly to defend. It's crazy. What Milton never spent a lot of time doing was the converse situation. How do you deal with natural monopolies? How do you deal with railroads? That was something he never really thought very, very hard about. And the great force of what he did was that it talked about something that was so important and on which he was so right. And you start to think of the things that change. For example, you don't have uh, government regulation of competitive labor markets. You don't have government regulations of landlord-tenant kinds of relations. You don't have government regulation of insurance companies with respect to rates. So for 80% of the market, he was right. But the other 20% is more complicated. The stuff that's easy to operate, you don't have to spend too much time to figure out how it ought to work. You become a contractual technician, figuring out rights and remedies and rates and things like that. But when you start dealing with these quasi-monopoly situations and so forth, that's where the really hard work starts to begin. And Milton's Friedman was never subtle enough to deal with those particular kinds of cases. So you can be a huge admirer of Milton Friedman, as I am, uh, but like everybody else, to some extent, he's a creature of his own time. He attacked the problems that were most conspicuous at those particular days, and the things that I'm talking about, though active in the 1930s, was stuff to which he did not pay much attention to, indeed, at any point in his life. He is Richard Epstein, Peter and Kirsten Bedford, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch, Professor of Law at NYU Law, Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago as well. Professor Epstein, always a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. What you're about to hear is an interview I did with Chris Buckner. This interview I did with Chris Buckner for the Salem Station in Chicago, where I co-host a morning show whose son, Dylan, who is a standout athlete, uh, high school athlete, and a standout student as well. He had been admitted to MIT. He committed suicide uh, early this year, just a few weeks ago. And uh, the conversation is about uh, the impact that COVID-19 lockdowns in Illinois had on his life and what he's learned about the impact it's having on the lives of a lot of other families and their children, too. And, of course, it's a story about one family in suburban Chicago, but it has implications nationally in terms of the impacts of the policies advanced, clung to by lockdowners. And so I think it's important to hear a father's perspective on this. Uh, The interview with Chris Buckner comes up right now. Some of the headlines around the country about uh, deaths of despair. Overdoses increased by 59 percent in 2020 in San Francisco. 
three times as many people have died from overdose deaths in San Francisco County as COVID in 2020. Overdoses double from previous year, Maricopa County, Arizona. Double the overdoses this year, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 40% increase in drug overdose deaths, Oregon. 62% increase in overdose, overdose deaths, Jefferson County, Kentucky. Headlines on the mental health side for kids, 93% increase in anxiety screenings. 300% increase in child ER visits related to mental health in Jacksonville, Florida. 217% increase in calls to mental health hotline in Nevada. Mental health ER visits up nationally, 24 to 31% for children. And, of course, uh, we've talked as well about not just anxiety and mental health challenges, but uh, deaths of despair, including the increase in suicides, including in Cook County. And uh, one of the um, suicides that captured a lot of attention, understandably so, was this standout football player. And, oh, by the way, standout student at Glenbrook North, his name Dylan Buckner. I'm reading from his obituary. He was an honor student, a three-year varsity football starting quarterback, a team captain his senior year, holds a school record for passing completions. And, um, by the way, his family, just to put a plug in for his family, uh, in lieu of any support for uh, Dylan Buckner or Flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the National Suicide Prevention Line, Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Org. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is where the family asked donations to be made. This was a, a suicide that rocked the region because this is a kid who clearly had everything going for him. I know Dylan would be with us today if COVID hadn't prevented him from being in person working on projects with classmates, from being in person to work out with his teammates, being able to grab a burger or tacos and just hang with his friends in a restaurant. While on Thursday, that was just a speculation of mine, Friday's event and the way it, infect, it affected me has given me all the conviction I need to know that Dylan's death was COVID-related. Well, and, and from what I understand, and we're about to hear more on this, um, the family is trying to help other families who have children who are um, suffering from the same sort of anxiety, mental health issues, despondency that those statistics I just rattled off indicate that, uh, as his mom said, that uh, Dylan suffered from. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dylan Buckner's father, Chris Buckner. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for uh, having me on and uh, calling attention to uh, to the troubles of uh, today's youth and uh, trying to be a voice for them in terms of uh, getting sports back and all their activities back and getting them, getting them back to school. So thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, it's, it's our honor. I mean, look, you know, suicide, and we've talked about it on this show before, well before COVID, it's just one of these um, mysteries uh, and, and it's so devastating to families. We understand, but, but I wonder if you could just speak to your son before we talk a little bit about um, the work that you and your family are trying to do and the issues you just mentioned that you're trying to call attention to, so that uh, perhaps uh, by talking about Dylan's situation, maybe some other families are seeing similar signs, and uh, and maybe this will uh, impress upon them the need to uh, take really evasive action to address whatever signs they're seeing that may be similar to what your son was experiencing. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd be I'd be happy to. Um, well, I think what, uh, we found was so scary, uh, about Dylan's situation was 
you know, as you mentioned there in your kind, kind words about him, um, you know, we really felt like he had everything going for him. And, um, uh, you know, we're very involved parents and, uh, you know, loved him very much. I felt like I had a very close relationship with him. I think there might be a stereotype that, you know, or people might think, oh, you know, that's, that's not me. That's not my family. That can't happen to me. But before Dylan made his first suicide attempt in September, I really, you know, would have never, would have never guessed it could have been possible with my son. So when you talk about depression system symptoms or suicide risk factors, you know, suicide risk factors are things like being lonely, depressed, having family problems or substance abuse. And what I'm trying to tell people is that, you know, at least three of those four are probably invisible. Um, you know, how do you know if someone is lonely or depressed? Maybe in your family, you might feel like, well, if there's family problems, I would know it. But, you know, how do you know if your teenagers abusing substances? Uh, you know, that's probably something uh, I would think they're going to they're going to hide from you. So um, what was what was so difficult about Dylan's situation was just that, you know, you, you couldn't see it. Um, there, there were not changes in his behavior. You know, I sincerely believe we have we we, we don't have uh, family family problems. You know, there were no arguments. There were no um, conflicts. Uh, you know, he's got, uh, you know, plenty of food and a warm place to sleep. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't. So he was, he was luckier than most. And yet still with, uh, the drugs, uh, you know, the, the, the medications, um, that, that he was taking for depression, uh, all the therapy he was getting, which was, uh, inpatient therapy, outpatient therapy, you know, the support he was getting from, uh, friends and uh, family members and his uh, coaches and school community. And yet his, you know, his brain was just still attacking him every day. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, alive and happy on uh, Thursday morning. And I talked with him at, at noon and, and certainly didn't see any signs. He talked to one of his football coaches till about one o'clock. And, uh, you know, was, was dead at, dead at three o'clock. So, I mean, it can happen that fast. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just scary what a, what a silent killer it can be. Chris, did Dylan have any hope that sports would return? Absolutely. I mean, I, I know, you know, our family definitely thinks that, uh, you know, with, with no COVID, um, with, uh, if he would have been able to play football, um, he, he would have been in a better place. Now, you know, we've been, tried to be honest with people that, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, this couldn't have happened to him, you know, six or nine months from now. Um, and COVID would have obviously been over, but, you know, having access to his friends, being in school, getting to play football, um, you know, would, would have, would have made a difference. You know, those would have been bright spots for him. And, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of people that talk about, uh, depression, you know, and a lot of people refer to it as like, you know, going into darkness and eventually when you, when you come out, you come back out into the light. And, you know, we think with COVID, uh, you know, if Dylan could have gone to school and played football that, um, you know, it would have been, it would have been an opportunity maybe to come into the light or at least, uh, you know, made him feel better and, and given us more time for him to come into the light. Uh, because, you know, what I, what I read about people that have struggled like Dylan was struggling is that, you know, a lot of times they feel like they don't know 
what caused them to go into the darkness and they don't know what caused them to come back into the light, but, um, but it, it took some time. And, um, you know, so that's, that's again, a message to anybody struggling is, uh, you know, don't be ashamed of it. It's, um, you know, it's not unlike, you know, having cancer or having a broken bone. Um, you know, if you were a teenager and, and you had cancer or a broken leg, you wouldn't, be ashamed of that. You wouldn't hide it from your parents. You wouldn't hide it from your friends. You know, you certainly wouldn't expect to get better without, you know, going to a doctor and, and taking drugs and, um, you know, taking medications and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get better. So, um, you know, those are, those are some of the things we're, we're trying to, trying to say to, uh, you know, people in our community and, and everybody. Chris, let's pause right there. And when we come back, I want to talk more about uh, uh, social isolation and uh, the sense that kids can feel socially isolated, even surrounded by their family. Uh, more with our interview with Chris Buckner, father of Dylan Buckner, when we return. I said, maybe you're going to be the one that saves me. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Before the break, we were talking to Chris Buckner about his son Dylan's tragic suicide. Uh, In part, he believes brought on by the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions on sports and in-person schooling. We return to more of that interview I did on my uh, morning show uh, that I host in Chicago right now. I hope I'm not being too invasive. If I am, just tell me. But you mentioned when Dylan first attempted suicide in September and he was in therapy and he was taking medications, as you were describing. Um, what were your communications with him like? What, what did he tell you about, uh, you know, what had changed and, and why he would attempt something like that? Where, you know, where he was, what, what kind of place he was in and uh, what he needed, maybe. Yeah. So, um, so as I say, it was such a shock. Um, but, um, uh, you know, right, right or wrong, um, you know, our, our family approach was, you know, not to, um, not to, uh, you know, seize, seize the kid's phone and look at what was going on in the phone. And, um, you know, of course, if you want to know what's going on in your kid's life, all you need to do is, you know, is, is get a hold of their phone. Um, so when he was in the hospital, I, I got on his phone that night and, um, you know, learned that, you know, that he, he had been using a little bit of marijuana and, um, you know, like a lot of teenagers, you know, had, had the occasional beer on Friday or Saturday night. And uh, I remember thinking to myself that when I was his age, I was so afraid of what my parents would think if they found out I was doing some of those things and the anxiety that that created for me. And so uh, Dylan's mom and I, you know, told him the next day in the hospital that, you know, we knew what was going on and uh, we loved him unconditionally. And, um, you know, no matter what was going on, we we would still love him and, and try to help him. And I really thought that that would be a big difference. Uh, you know, I thought that was maybe part of his, his fear uh, and anxiety, uh, you know, was hiding things from us. But um, unfortunately, that that really wasn't it. It was just, uh, you know, this this 
sometimes minute by minute battle he would face with, you know, negative thoughts and negative self-talk. And, um, you know, again, we feel, you know, somewhat lucky. I mean, that's, that's a tough word to use, but somewhat lucky in that we at least, you know, learned of his condition. I mean, I think of the unanswered questions I would have had if he would have been successful in September, but, you know, we tried to talk with him all the time. We tried to check in with him all the time. Um, you know, I begged him to, to try to tell me if he ever got to that point where he had suicidal uh, thoughts again. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, after it became clear that he wasn't able to do that, in a moment of clarity, I asked him about it. And, you know, he described that, you know, when he went, you know, past kind of his his red line in his mind, he just wasn't able to communicate really with, with us. Um so I'm sorry, Dan. I'm probably no. Probably that's ran. no. That's I think that's really helpful. I mean, because so I think it points up something I've heard before when we've talked to families who've suffered a suicide in their family, which is um, that the, the sense of social isolation he he felt is not something that uh, a, a parent can reach, and and some you know sometimes that that's why you know kids are social beings, and this is why friend circles are so important, is because. Kids will lean on friends in a way they don't, for all sorts of reasons, lean on parents. And so you can be doing everything right as a parent and as a, a family, and you're, the, the, the person you're trying to help still feels completely isolated from his surroundings. And in this situation we're talking about with COVID as the backdrop, you know, that's his only surrounding. Right. Yeah, Dan, I, I, you remind me that uh, Dylan described it as he started going through therapy that he suffered from cognitive cognitive distortion. So, you know, as, as Amy mentioned, um, you know, the Friday after his death, there was a candlelight vigil in our community. And, um, you know, it was just positively overwhelming to walk out of the church and see, you know, you know, what had to be, you know, over 500 people out, out on the, out on the, the square. And, uh, you know, so many people telling us, you know, what a great friend Dylan was, and, uh, you know, but Dylan would say, because we would, we would talk to him about that, but he would say that, you know, he just had cognitive distortions. When he got in a dark place, he couldn't see that he had, you know, all those friends. Um, so, you know, again, in, in our experience, what I'm just trying to say to people is, um, you know, a, a suicidal person, a depressed person, you know, it doesn't look like what you might see in the movies or, or on, on TV. Um you know, it's not mental weakness. Uh, you know, again, I believe it's not, you know, some some family, some deep family problem. Uh, you know, it really was in his brain, a chemical imbalance, the teen brain, uh, you know, being different than, than our adult brains in terms of how they handle things, maybe yeah. how they respond. Yeah. And, um, and again, just saying to, you know, to parents and to, to kids that, you um, you know, you just, you just really have to talk, talk to your, to your friends and it's not a text and it's not, you know, it's not uh Snapchat, you know, it's, it's trying to really talk to your friends face to face, uh, talk to your parents. They love you unconditionally. They would do anything to help you. Um, don't be ashamed if you're suffering and, you know, if you're a friend and, and you get, you know, you get a text from your friend and they're in crisis, uh, you know, is, is, difficult as it might be or as bad as you might feel um you know if you think they're in danger you know you do need to call their parents you do need to call 911 uh in our community we have a you know a text to tip line um 
and, and, you know, and, and Chris, I mean, with all the people that have come forward to express their condolences to your family, I suppose you've now had a lot of conversations with people who have talked about uh, perhaps the, uh, the problems they've had with uh, one or more of their children. Some of the same things are happening in other families that happened in, in your family. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the outpouring of support has been tremendous. Uh, so many people I know, good friends, uh, people I consider my closest friends. I'm hearing Dylan's news, you know, share their struggles with uh, depression. So many people have shared their stories with me, people I know, people I don't know about losing, uh, you know, loved ones to suicide. Um so it, it really is, um, you know, it really is uh, a major issue, uh, as you as you both may know, and I, I've learned that, you know, for teens, the three, uh, you know, biggest causes of death, number one is, is vehicle accidents, number two is suicide. Um, one in 11 uh, high school students, one in 11 high school students will attempt suicide in their four years in high school, just under 10%. Uh, of kids. And now, um, you know, only one, thankfully only one in about 25 uh, suicide attempts uh, is completed and results in results in death. But, um, you know, it's, it's not an isolated incident. And, uh, you know, I know uh, schools probably do a very good job about teaching kids about the dangers of text and drive and drinking and driving or smoking and driving. Um, but I, but I don't know, I'm not saying they don't do this, but I just don't know if, you know, in health class or, or wherever the right forum is, they do enough to, you know, teach kids about depression and suicide risks and, uh, you know, how to try and try to handle these, you know, very complex feelings. Chris Buckner, uh, we're terribly sorry for your loss of Dylan and uh, really grateful, appreciative for your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Best to you and your family. Thank you very much. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, continuing our conversation about uh, all things related to COVID after that uh, very tough interview you heard between myself and Chris Buckner. Uh, Jen Psaki, uh, Jen Psaki, I like to pronounce the P. She is the uh, White House spokesman. She was asked uh, yesterday uh, about uh, Joe Biden not wearing a mask, the Biden family not wearing masks on federal ground per his executive order. When they were at the Lincoln Memorial, listen to the response. Why weren't President Biden and all members of the Biden family masked at all times on federal lands last night if he signed an executive order that mandates masks on federal lands at all times? At the inaugural at the uh, Lincoln Memorial, yes. I, I think Steve, he was 
celebrating uh, an evening uh, of a historic day in our country. And certainly he signed the mask mandate because it's a way to send a message to the American public about the importance of uh, wearing masks, how it can save tens of thousands of lives. We take a number of COVID precautions, as you know here, in terms of testing, social distancing, mask wearing ourselves, as, as we do every single day. But I don't know that I have more for you on it than that. But as uh, Joe Biden often talks about, uh, it is not just important the uh, example of power, but the power of our example. Was that a good example for people who are watching who might not pay attention uh, normally? Well, Steve, I think uh, the power of his example is also uh, the message he sends by signing 25 executive orders, including um, almost half of them related to COVID, uh, the requirements that we're all under every single day here to ensure we're sending that message to the public. Yesterday was a historic moment in our history. He was inaugurated as president of the United States. He was surrounded by his family. We take a number of precautions, but I don't think I think we have big, bigger issues to, to worry about at this moment in time. Really, it's just 100 days, man. Just 100 days. He couldn't abide one. And it's uh, saving tens of thousands of lives. It is an important thing. CDC saying the most important thing pending a vaccine before the vaccines were online. And now it's no big deal if you're celebrating. Okay. For more on this and a lot of other COVID-related topics, including on the vaccines, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C., Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I don't want to obsess too much about uh, the mask mandates, but I mean, you know, if you're going to make a big show of it and if you're going to be morally indignant in the direction of 330 million people, uh, then don't tell me it's not a big deal. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, look, she could have she could have given all kinds of explanations, but she sort of dodged the question. Yeah, you know, you know what the thing here is too. I think it just rubs people the wrong way. It's so much of this, they're never wrong. Nobody in charge is ever wrong. You could have said, you know what, he should have been wearing a mask per his own order. He should have been wearing a mask. The president should say it too. I was wrong. Nobody is ever wrong. Whatever I'm doing, because it's me, I'm right. If I'm wearing a mask, I'm right. If I'm not wearing a mask, I'm right. No big deal. And I think that's the attitude that just pervades so much of the COVID policies that have been imposed. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And there was also certainly a tendency to uh, blame anything that the previous administration did as as being terrible. But uh, everything this administration does is is wonderful. She also, uh, or excuse me, Dr. Fauci dodged the Amazon question. He's very, he was concerned about not telling the truth, he said, during the Trump years because of repercussions. He Apparently he's continuing to be concerned about uh, not stating the obvious because of repercussions. He wouldn't comment on Jeff Bezos's letter to President Biden dated January 20th, that would be Inauguration Day, saying that Amazon stands ready to assist with uh, uh, vaccinations and distributions of vaccine. Um, they had the same capacity for on January 19th, but they weren't so interested then. Right, right. I mean, look, it's a very curious letter. Uh, the Amazon had written to uh, the Trump administration back in the middle of December after the first vaccine was approved, uh, but that letter only discussed the uh, possibility of obtaining vaccine for 
the uh, workers at Amazon, which Amazon was trying to label as essential workers, didn't offer any kind of aid in the distribution effort. So this is a brand new letter. Suddenly, uh, the on January 20th, uh, Amazon discovered that it has all kinds of capabilities that it could be used to help uh, fight COVID-19. Uh, when we come back with Dr. Zinberg, I want to talk about uh, when he believes we may be uh, on the other side of this through the combination of vaccine distribution to the extent you can project out based on current vaccination progress uh, as well as infection. Uh, more with Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, right after this. The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, I see governors like Andrew Cuomo, St. Andrew of COVID-19, uh, and others criticizing, complaining about the uh, their current stock of vaccines. They need more doses. And then I look at the CDC data as published by the New York Times on the number of doses distributed and the number of shots given. And I look at New York and I see 2.213 million doses distributed, 1.16 million, uh, 1.11 million actually shots given. That's about 50 percent. And I see the same things uh, even worse in places like my home state of Illinois, which has about a third of the population vaccinated so far as West Virginia. What is going on with uh, vaccine distribution and some of the um, the plaintiff cries from governors around the country to help us with that? We're pleased to be rejoined by Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and an Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Uh, Dr. Zinberg, your assessment of the uh, vaccine distribution to date and, and some of the um, the headlines that are being made right now by governors who say we need more supply? Well, the governors who are saying they need more supply are the same governors who are doing a pretty poor job of utilizing the supply they already have. So if, uh, as you made reference to, the it, it, around the country, less than half of the vaccines that are available are actually making their way into people's arms. Uh, and that's not the fault of the federal government. That's the fault of the governors. The the federal government has turned over the vaccines to state and local authorities for them to do the vaccination. Uh, but most states, particularly uh, states like Illinois and, and New York, have done a pretty poor job. Uh, the, the best states have been states like West Virginia and the Dakotas, who've gotten more than 70 percent of the available supply into people's arms. And, and that's really because they actually prepared. Uh, the, they took the time, you know, we, we've known vaccines have coming for several months, and most states took the time to do something, whereas the states that are complaining the loudest now did not. And uh, with respect to the, the different performance of the different states, it seems like uh, one indication, the states that are performing well really leaned on their existing healthcare care infrastructure, hospitals, pharmacies, and the like, and other states like New York have uh, had a lot of middleman bureaucracy with uh, extensive in, uh, forms with, you know, with 65 questions to answer and documents to upload to schedule a vaccination. 
How about uh, just keeping it simple and saying 65 and over, that's 81% of the COVID deaths, go get vaccinated, uh, and uh, and then the states will tell you where you can. Right. I mean, that's what Governor Justice of West Virginia said, that they prepared you and they've utilized their local pharmacies, which are the same places people often get their flu vaccines. West Virginia utilized those uh, locations for vaccinating people, and they've tried to simplify it. They set up the uh, criteria as age, age, age is what Justice yeah. said. So, you know, unlike New York or a lot of other states, which were trying to micromanage everything, and it was, you, you know, all sorts of criteria to the point where providers were confused. They didn't know who they could vaccinate. They were threatened with fines by Governor Cuomo if they vaccinated out of order. And you had the crazy situation when people had extra doses at the end of the day, they would often discard them because they were concerned about giving out of order. Uh, And speaking of the vaccine, a new serological study uh, out of uh, Israel finds that um, participants who received the second dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine developed six to 20 times more antibodies for the pathogen sort of consistent with uh, what uh, the uh, Pfizer experiments, clinical trials anticipated. Uh, And additionally, 98 percent of those subjects studied by uh, uh, Sheba Medical Center were uh, uh, immune from or were were no longer transmitters of the virus as well after the second dose. So, um, you know, that that runs into the CDC's uh, uh, admonition to continue to mask up and follow all the protocols even after you're vaccinated. Right. Look, CDC has been ultra cautious because for the last six months, they have been battered with this accusation that they are politically influenced uh, and that you shouldn't trust anything that comes out of there because the Trump administration is pushing them to to spread false information. So they have been ultra cautious. Uh, And, you know, normally when you give a vaccine, people get an immune reaction, they develop antibodies, and those antibodies uh, protect them not merely against getting the disease, but against getting infected in the first place. And CDC decided it had to be ultra cautious and say, well, we don't know because the studies haven't shown it yet that you're protected against the getting infected in the first place, even though that was sort of ran contrary to all the other things. And so, so, I mean, you have a crazy situation where the CDC guidelines still say that you should vaccinate everyone, regardless of whether they had COVID in the past, because we know they would have developed antibodies and they'd be protected, but they're being cautious there too, but they're probably wasting millions of doses by vaccinating people who are already immune. Hey. Um, Alex Tabarak writing in uh, Marginal Revolution uh, on the basis of Yu Yang Gu's projections, who this uh, Chinese researcher has been some of the most accurate in his projections, say basically it says basically we will reach herd immunity by July. In July, this is going to be over. The only question is how many people will die between now and then, because uh, the combination of vaccinations at the million, even if we stay at this million per day clip that we're currently on. Uh, plus infections will uh, will get us there. Um, do you subscribe to that uh, time horizon? Yeah, well, the you know, we know there are, you know, somewhere it's over 25 million confirmed cases. 
And the CDC and others have already said there are many more actual infections than there are confirmed cases. In other words, because not everyone who got infected went to the doctor and got tested. In fact, the CDC said it could be as many as eight times. So if you multiply eight times 25, you can see that an awful lot of people have probably already gotten some immunity. Uh, so it lowers the number of people you then have to vaccinate to reach the sort of 75% or so of the population reach herd immunity. Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C., Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Take care. of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This uh, letter allegedly from Ted Nugent uh, has gone viral. It's unproven that it's from Ted Nugent as far as I can tell. It sounds like something the Nuge might write, and it's certainly representative of some of the reaction to President Biden's no red state, no blue state redux during Wednesday's inaugural address. Here's how this little ditty goes from the Motor City Madman. Dear Vice President Biden, allegedly from him, dear Vice President Biden, although I refuse to listen to it, I understand that during your presidential acceptance speech, you were calling for the unity of Trump supporters. I remember four years ago, my President Trump also called for unity. I remember how congressional members of your Democratic Party responded by boycotting his inauguration. I remember how you and your Democratic Party cheated and used the greatest law enforcement institution of this country to spy on my President Trump's campaign. I remember how you and your Democratic Party created a fake Russian dossier to try and impeach my President Trump. I remember how your Speaker of the House ripped up my President Trump's beautiful State of the Union speech on national TV. I remember how you and your Democratic Party tried to impeach my President Trump over a Ukraine phone call. You accused my President Trump of pay to play. Come to find out, Joe, it was really you and your son, Hunter. I remember how you and your Democratic Party blamed my President Trump over a pandemic that he had nothing to do with. I remember how you and your Democratic Party encouraged rioting and looting of my great United States of America. I remember how you and your Democratic Party used the media to spread lie after lie about my President Trump. I remember how you and your Democratic Party stole the election for my President Trump. This Trump supporter remembers all that, Joe, and will not be unifying with your Democratic Party. This Trump supporter will be giving you the same respect you gave my President Trump your abject criminal dishonesty is treasonous, so blank off. All right. Uh, there is certainly a lot of uh, accuracy in terms of the walk down memory lane in that letter, allegedly from the Nuge. Somebody uh, less of a rock and rolling madman, Glenn Greenwald, is also raising some concerns and questions about this, the uh, sincerity of this call for unity. The insinuations going on, anyone questioning any of the accepted narrative, the D.C. narrative about January 6th or about the threat of violent extremists and who comprises that threat in America. How many times did Joe Biden talk about white supremacy during his inaugural address? Anyone questioning this must, by virtue of these doubts, harbor sympathy for the terrorists and their neo-Nazi white supremacist ideology. Liberals have spent so many years now in a tight alliance with neocons and the CIA that are making the 2002 version of the John Ashcroft look like the president of the old school ACLU. Greenwald said there is a 
going to be a, a new domestic war on terror that's coming. Calls for a war on terror sequel, a domestic version complete with surveillance and censorship, are not confined to ratings deprived cable hosts and ghouls from the security state. The Wall Street Journal reporting Mr. Biden has said he plans to make a priority of passing a law against domestic terrorism. And he's been urged to create a White House post overseeing the fight against ideologically inspired violent extremists and increasing funding to combat them. Why would such new terrorism laws be needed in a country that already imprisons more of its citizens than any other country in the world as a result of a very aggressive set of criminal laws, asks Greenwald. What acts should be criminalized by new, quote unquote, domestic terrorism laws that are not already deemed criminal? asks Glenn Greenwald. Great questions. In the coming weeks and months, I suspect we're going to find out the answers. This is Dan Prost. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com. You get podcasts there as you can on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Uh, we talked about his uh, op-ed the other day in the Wall Street Journal, Blacklists are the Rage in Publishing. And Thomas Spence picked the term blacklisting purposely because it harkens back to another era, a censorious era that uh, we are rightly condemn, uh, except today the left embraces. Americans argue, write, preach, campaign and vote. They don't blacklist wrote Thomas Pence, who is the president and publisher of Regnery Publishing. And he joins us now. Thomas Pence, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for having me on. Tell us about um, the uh, letter that was circulating among publishers. Uh, I hadn't heard of it until I read your op-ed, and that is really a development. We're so focused on big tech. Uh, Publishing companies have big cultural power, too, as gatekeepers. And uh, this letter you referenced is really chilling. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when I saw it, actually. And I thought I was as cynical as, you know, anybody in the business. <laughs> and a fellow who writes uh, novels and comic books for teenagers composed a, an open letter to the publishing, American publishing industry, and has collected more than 500 signatures from people who describe themselves as publishing professionals, calling on, he doesn't use the word, but it's exactly what it is, calling for a blacklist of everybody who, quote, participated in the Trump administration, insisting that no one in that category should ever be offered a book contract. And goes on to describe them, compares this to Son of Sam laws, which prevent criminals from benefiting financially <laughs> from writing about their crimes, and uh, calls, these, calls people uh, who participated in the Trump administration monsters and criminals. I mean, it's not surprising exactly if you know a lot of people who work in publishing or a lot, a lot of other industries like that. It's pretty naked. It, usually they don't come out and say it quite so plainly, which is, you know, useful. Well, and, and here's the thing, too. I mean, you can say whatever you want about uh, President Trump, but you think about some of the uh, really talented people that were in his administration, and that doesn't describe everybody in his administration, but it certainly describes somebody like William Barr. William Barr is a serious person. You can agree or disagree. You can be upset about uh, the lack of conclusion to the Durham investigation before 
the changeover in administrations and so on and so forth. But to suggest that William Barr, with the life that he has lived and the accomplishments he had, for example, just use him as an example, doesn't have anything important to say. wouldn't potentially write an interesting book on the law, on a free society. The speech he gave at Notre Dame alone could be the basis of a book. Um, but to suggest that no one should uh, offer him a book contract because of his affiliation as the attorney general during part of the Trump administration. I mean, it's just absurd. It's anti-intellectual, which is, um, to me, the biggest indictment you can make of all of these pseudo-intellectuals who hold themselves out as deep thinkers. Yes. And by the way, Bill Barr, if you're listening to this show, Regnery is waiting for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be a conduit. Uh, You know, make sure I get my 10% on that deal. All right. All right. It's a deal. Uh, yeah, no, we'd love to have a book by Bill Barr. But uh, yeah, I, I think that and he's a perfect example of the kind of person that, you know, that these, well, less than well intellectually formed people are wanting to exclude. I live in Washington, D.C. I have been privileged to know quite a number of people who served in the Trump administration from the level of cabinet secretary on down. I have been deeply impressed by the caliber of person that was attracted to government service, the sacrifice that most of these people made to do it because, you know, they didn't need these jobs. It was usually a financial sacrifice. I mean, they're just incredibly gifted, talented people. And to say that, you know, quite apart from even calling them criminals and monsters, to say that they have nothing to contribute to the literary world, I think it shows how insular these people are. Well, sure. I mean, how, how about how about how about Dr. Ben Carson? I mean, before he was a Trump administration official, they made a freaking movie about him. <laughs> but, but, but now he's uninteresting, unworthy. Yeah, yeah. Now, to be fair, the signatories to this letter, who you know, most of whom identify themselves in some way with with you know an affiliation, professional affiliation, appear to be junior level people, not not the people running Simon & Schuster and Random House. Not yet. Not not yet. And that's the thing. It shows that this mentality, this incredibly censorious mentality, pervades the lower ranks, the junior ranks of the publishing industry. For one thing, those are the people that will be running the publishing houses in a few years. Also, I think they, they have influence and power with their companies that is uh, maybe out of proportion to their experience and wisdom. (laughs) The the, the cancel culture is is alive and well. And we've we've seen it a couple of times in the past few years where the the junior ranks of a publishing house rise in revolt when when, uh, their company is is publishing somebody they don't like. And and the, the management is afraid or just doesn't want to bother or whatever, but makes decisions that are against the business interests of the company to to mollify these people. And I I don't think they have earned that kind of power yet. (laughs) So you look at you look at the list of people who signed this book and you think, yeah, well, it's a bunch of, you know, junior assistant coordinating editors, but there's more to it than meets the eye. You know, Regnery, uh, going back to um, Harry, uh, Henry Regnery, you know, publishing mm-hmm. conservative books in the 50s, like God and Man at Yale, Buckley's uh, uh, opener. Uh, yeah. I mean, conservative books weren't exactly popular then either. Um, but 
I, I like what you write uh, about uh, Holly's book. We don't have to agree with everything or anything Mr. Holly does. We only ask if his book is well-crafted and has something true and worthwhile to say. And if the answer is yes, then we want to publish it. I mean, I can't imagine conservatives at the time or today saying, you should, you, let's, let's organize so that nobody publishes Gore Vidal. Let's organize so nobody publishes John Kenneth Galbraith. The whole idea is that you have to confront different viewpoints, uh, different schools of thought, different uh, policy proposals, different worldviews. That's the whole point of this. If something has somebody important, something important to say, they maybe start from something true and get to something that's less than true. But you have to hash it out. And we would never be in the business of trying to knock out left wing authors, uh, giving two examples from the Buckley era. And yet mm-hmm. uh, that's not the case here today with the Jacobins uh, that are ascendant. That, that's right. And I mean, I, I do, would never suggest that a person can't do something so bad that he should not be published. You know, <laughs> there are some, there's some, some people out there that, that Regnery would not publish, you know, because they're very bad people. But th- that's not what we're talking about in Senator Hawley's case or, or the, the, the hypothetical examples you gave. I mean, these are, there, there are a lot of people who just want to, to cancel, to blacklist people for simply having views or affiliations that, that they find objectionable. And it's a lot easier to shut them up than to respond to them, I guess. Well, we're uh, certainly happy that uh, Regnery is uh, still out there. And uh, as you rightly point out, um, we could be targeted next, but this is the path that we're choosing and we need more people that uh, really believe in core American values and the desire and desire to live in a, a free thinking, free speaking, free society to follow Regnery's example. Thomas Spence, president and publisher of Regnery Publishing. Uh, check out his speech, which I've, I'll retweet again. Blacklists are the rage in publishing. And just this comment, our Americans argue, write, preach, campaign and vote. They don't blacklist. Great statement of principle. Thomas Spence, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Bye bye. Well, speaking of the culture war, 2021 is already off to a disturbing start for conservatives. We've seen Twitter unilaterally shut down President Trump's account. The conservative platform Parler was booted off the App Store by Apple. And big tech is muzzling free speech at a speed that nobody could have predicted. Nobody except biologist and evolutionary theorist Brett Weinstein, who appeared in the film No Safe Spaces to issue this warning about political correctness running amok. If this is allowed to continue, it is going to work its way into the entire apparatus of government, journalism, maybe most seriously into the tech sector, which has become the governance apparatus for the new public square. YouTube and Google, Facebook and Twitter dictate whose voices can be heard. And if those entities start trying to engineer the conversation to adhere to the rules laid out with these phony Trojan horse terms, disaster will be the result. You need to see the full movie No Safe Spaces today for a preview of the politically correct dangers facing America as the Biden-Harris era begins this week. Just go to SalemNow.com and download your copy of No Safe Spaces or order the DVD. It's fast, easy to do. And you and your family need to see this important film now before any more of our freedoms are muzzled. Again, go to SalemNow.com and get your copy of No Safe Spaces. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the show. All of our heroes are back. John Heilman, uh, one of one of MSNBC's finest, uh, giving his uh, review of Wednesday's August affair. Thing that was to me so striking about today was that kind of comforting sense. Even with the masks, even with the distancing, even without the crowd, you know, those shots inside Statuary Hall that we're familiar with, you know, from every inauguration, the, the, the sight of uh, the Clintons and the Bushes and the Obamas, you know, the, the Avengers, you know, sort of the <laughs> Marvel superheroes back up there together all in one place. Well, with their friend Joe Biden, all of them, I think, feeling like that, that all of them sharing that same view that a lot of Americans had, which is that, you know, we did narrowly avert catastrophe in America and that they were all there to kind of, you know, kind of to buttress their buddy Joe Biden and see him in some ways as the as the natural and necessary corrective to what's been going on. All our heroes, the Avengers, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Obamas, all our heroes are back in charge there to support their buddy Joe Biden, narrowly averting disaster and celebrating that uh, great escape. Uh, as uh, somebody uh, called into our show, put it uh, more like the boys, the anti superhero superheroes, not the Avengers. Jack Schaefer writing in Politico about uh, media types, Beltway media types like John Heilman. Washington's Public Works Department should have built an emergency system of drainage, ditches, culverts and tunnels to divert into the Potomac River. The torrents of praise, approval and adoration the press poured down on President Joe Biden on Inauguration Day. At one point in the early evening, citizens living in low-lying portions of the city were at risk of drowning in the flash flood of commendations that flowed during the day-long pageant. That's quite the rhetorical flourish and uh, the proper cynicism ascribed to the D.C. press corps. Uh, we also found out uh, that Scranton Joe, now Lunch Pail Joe, takes the Amtrak to and fro D.C. from Delaware. Working man's guy. Keystone Pipeline gone. What do you have to say to those 11,000 people that are out of a gig? Here's what uh, White House spokes being Jen Psaki had to say. What, what would you say to those who have lost their job or will lost their job as a result of that decision? What, what would the message from the president and the White House be? The message of the president and the White House would be that he is uh, committed. His record will show shows the American people that he's committed to uh, clean energy jobs, uh, to jobs that are not only good high-paying jobs, uh, union jobs, uh, but ones that are also good for our environment. He thinks it's possible to do both. Uh, He led an effort uh, when he was the vice president uh, to put millions of people to work uh, with those both of those priorities in mind, and he will continue to do that as president. Uh, but he had opposed the Keystone Pipeline back in 2013 uh, when it was uh, when, when there was a consideration of the permit or sorry, I don't think it was 2013. I think it was a little bit after that. Uh, and he's been consistent in his view and he was delivering on a promise he made to the American public during the campaign. No question. He's consistent. The short answer is those uh, pipeline workers. Go learn how to code, just like West Virginia coal miners. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Amber a- uh, Amber Athey. She's a Washington editor for The Spectator, senior Blankley fellow at the Steamboat Institute, and host of Unfit to Print for The Daily Caller. Amber, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. What do we know from uh, the first you know, 36 hours of the Biden administration? Well, you summed it up quite perfectly. Scranton Joe is uh, not exactly what he seems. I tried to warn people about this a few months ago, that Joe Biden is really a phony who only talks about American workers and union workers when it benefits him. But his whole career has been a history of selling out those exact same people. And we're seeing that now with this 
flurry of executive orders that he's unleashed on the American public during his first two days in office. The Keystone Pipeline is one. Meanwhile, we have him rejoining these global institutions that have repeatedly taken advantage of American taxpayer dollars and American strength, like the World Health Organization and the Paris Climate Accords. And then you have loosening of immigration restrictions in the middle of a pandemic. At the one time when people are desperately searching for work, Joe Biden is incentivizing the importation of cheap labor, and not to mention the fact that incentivizing illegal immigration would almost certainly lead to the spread of more communicable disease. And if his goal is to lessen the count of coronavirus deaths, you would think that he would be more interested in restricting travel. So across the board, this is a really disastrous first couple of days for the American worker. Uh, And on the culture war front, uh, he has nicely aligned himself very quickly with uh, the Jacobin purgists and, and his cabinet. His secretary of defense to be retired Army General Lloyd Austin saying this week that um, priority in the Pentagon will be to rid racists and extremists from the ranks of the U.S. military. That is the uh, greatest problem facing our military is that it's full of racists and extremists. That's an interesting commentary on the U.S. military and uh, on the gender portion of the identitarian side. Biden signed a uh, pro trans EO executive order that allows men to compete in women's sports. That's exactly right. And this is why the Georgia Senate races were so important, because if these types of changes get codified into law, we will never see truth again in this country. The idea that a biologically born male can claim to be a female and then compete in women's sport is unbelievable. There's a story out of Connecticut where a young woman was set to be a state champion in track and field until two biological men joined the sport, and routinely won every race, setting her in third place. And there's stories like that across the country of what happens when men are allowed to compete in women's sports, and it really will lead to the destruction of women's sports, which is so anti-feminist, it's unbelievable, because the whole purpose of Title IX was to give women their own space with which to compete with one another on a fair level, and Biden is seeking to undo that entirely. Um, How conservatives should react? Get your perspective on uh, this piece in Am Greatness by a contributor there named uh, Louis Murano. Uh, He says of conservatives that um, for those who dream of uh, revolution or restoration in response to some of these onslaughts that we're describing, and we haven't even talked about big tech, he uh, said for those who are serious, keep quiet. Tough talk is cheap. It might make you feel better, but the cost will be high if things get real. Even yard signs and bumper stickers are unnecessary giveaways. Yes, we know you support the Second Amendment, but shut up about it. The world doesn't need to know what you have or don't have. Be careful about who you trust. Avoid idiots, loudmouths, and blowhards. Assume three-letter agencies will penetrate your organizations. Your own government will try to sting and entrap you. Expect agent provocateurs and and false flag operations. As much as possible, keep everything face-to-face. Retain good lawyers. They're coming after you. Don't make it easier. We'll get through this somehow. We have no choice. It's sort of like intellectual doomsday prepping. You know, is that a little bit uh, overly paranoid for you? Well, I don't know that it's overly paranoid, but I'm not sure how effective it would be, because if you're a person who is uh, inclined to share your conservative beliefs, if you're really passionate about them, that could provide a very uh, good sense of encouragement for people who are a little bit more shy. And as we do enter this period where it seems like conservative views and, and living as a conservative is uh, penalized in, in either legally or culturally, 
then one of the most important things is going to be brave patriots standing up and and bringing um, people who are a little bit more afraid along with them. If we all shut up and don't do anything about it, then unfortunately, uh, you're going to have a really hard time winning elections because people are going to be too scared to even go out and vote. She is Amber Athey, Washington editor for The Spectator, senior Blankley fellow at the Steamboat Institute and host of Unfit to Print for The Daily Caller. Amber, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend KT McFarland. KT, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You absolutely have the best high-level show of anybody in the country. On the Salem Radio Network. Here we go. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. When we've been talking about big tech lately, it's all in the area of purging dissenting views, right? It's uh, Google and Apple and Amazon taking down Parler. It's the banning of Trump's Twitter account or Facebook account or Instagram account and so on and so forth. It's all on the purge side of eliminating dissent or uh, Wellian style. But there's an interesting uh, question that is raised by Eric Felton over at RealClearInvestigations.com that uh, is, frankly, of uh, similar import, and that is our national security, would big tech be with America in a time of war? I don't think that's a question that's been explored as deeply as it should be, and uh, the exploration Eric Felton did is a good starting point to think about some of these things as we debate and contemplate different policies related to our big tech oligarchs. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined now by... Eric Felton, who's a correspondent for RealCareInvestigations.com and the James Beard award-winning author of How's Your Drink? Uh, I think the big tech companies are going to drive us to drink. Eric Felton, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, how are you doing? Uh, it's a, a good, and thanks so much for being with us. Really interesting uh, consideration. What if, in a time of war, big tech companies, maybe not even at the leadership level, but because of the nature of their workforce, decided that they didn't want to throw in with the United States government, the United States military, to assist us with combating enemies, foreign or domestic. Uh, What would that look like? And you sort of explore that. Yeah, you know, there's been a big shift in in the nature of software. I think people haven't really realized or given much thought to the ability of tech companies to take away, you know, sort of like Lucy with the football and, and Charlie Brown at the last moment to take away these communications tools that we've come to rely on so much. And um, uh, similarly, the military, the intelligence community, um, police departments, they've all been um, sold aggressively on technologies from the big tech companies that um, they've come to rely on, uh, facial recognition software, 
projects involving um, artificial intelligence to make drones more efficient. Um, and the question is, once the uh, military police uh, in the intelligence community has become reliant on these technologies, um, can they be sort of taken away in the same way that um, people found their Twitter accounts all of a sudden taken away from them, their ability to use Parler taken away from them? Um, we've, we've seen it happen already. Um, Teresa Carlson, who's the uh, head of government sales for Amazon Web Services, which is Amazon's big cloud business, they've sold aggressively to um, government. Um, they had a software called Recognition, Recognition with K. Um, and two years ago, Teresa Carlson of AWS said that Amazon was unwaveringly in support uh, of police, military, and intelligence. And yet, this last summer, after the death of George Floyd, it became very unpopular to be doing business with police departments, and Amazon simply yanked the software away from police departments, and so their facial recognition software um, was taken away right at the minute that there was a crisis going on. Um, you know, we can have a debate about whether it's a good idea for there to be facial recognition software used widely, but what we don't want is um, institutions and organizations that are essential to the country using these technologies, and then when there's a crisis, find that the technology is taken away from them. Uh, when we come back, I want to explore this a little bit more is in terms of understanding the internal dynamics of these big tech companies. Is the the, 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 the difference, if there is one, between senior leadership and, and uh, the rank-and-file members of the workforces and sort of who's driving the decision-making when it comes to providing uh, tech services to law enforcement or tech services to the U.S. military. We'll uh, pick it up there. Uh, get some additional perspective from Eric Felton, who's a correspondent for RealClearInvestigations.com and the James Beard award-winning author of How Is Your Drink, his piece at RealClearInvestigations.com, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Will the tech woke force be with us if we go to war? We'll try to advance uh, that question a bit further right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Eric Felton. He's a correspondent for RealClearInvestigations.com. He's the James Beard Award winning author of How's Your Drink as well. And uh, before the break, Eric, you were giving us an example of big tech being a service provider to law enforcement, facial recognition software. And then under pressure from employees yanking uh, access to that software to police departments because of the you know, defund police, police are systemically racist institutions, unrest that was uh, uh, attendant to our summer in America last year. Um, but we've also seen examples where at the leadership level, big tech has thrown in with America's enemies. I think of Larry Page and Sergey Brin over at Google facilitating a China suppression of Hong Kong democracy fighters. So 
you know, how should we understand how big tech processes these decisions to seek military or law enforcement contracts? And then, uh, you know, what is the basis by which they may turn on uh, American institutions like law enforcement and the military? Is this being really driven by senior leadership or are they captive to sort of the culture they've created within their companies that uh, that woke force culture that you describe? I think the uh, latter is the case, that the leadership of these companies is sort of afraid of their own workforce and uh, their woke force. One example is Google, where they were pursuing a project with the Pentagon called Project Maven, which allowed for more accurate targeting of uh, drone strikes. The workforce got upset that they were working with the Pentagon and wrote an open letter to um, the head of Google Sundar Pichai, um, saying, quote, we believe that Google should not be in the business of war, end quote. Microsoft, or rather Google, canceled their participation in Project Maven under pressure from their own employees. And a similar thing has happened um, at Microsoft, where employees wrote a letter to management saying they didn't go to Microsoft, quote, with risk of, end- of ending lives. And um, Microsoft so far has not backed out of any contracts with the Pentagon that I know of. They're working on a project worth some $10 billion called Project Jedi. But the question is, you know, will they be there when a crisis comes along? And people in the military worry a lot about what's called the security of supply. And it has to do not only with the way these companies, uh, the attitudes within the companies, but also the new nature of cloud software, which is once upon a time, if you bought software, you got it on some disks and you had physical control of the software, you loaded it on your computer, and let's say you bought Microsoft Office, Microsoft couldn't tell you how to use or not use your software. But now with Office 365 as an example, you don't get the disks, the software runs in the cloud, which is to say on the servers that are in the possession of Microsoft. And if they don't like how you're using the software, they can pull it from you. I think that that's an example of what happened with Amazon Web Services and uh, police departments. They didn't just stop selling the product to police departments. They suspended the use of the technology for all police departments, including those that had been doing business with Amazon Web Services all along. So and, when and, there was a crisis, yeah. I'm sorry. And, and you can do it instantaneously, I mean, as they did with Parler. I mean, you can flip the switch and you're over. Right. So, so it seems to me, I mean, it seems to me, so we as a, 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 as a country have created this, we're, we're in the position of Dr. Frankenstein with respect to big, tunk, big tech companies, for, for, because for so many of the big tech companies, I should say, we're the product. And then also big tech companies, these CEOs and senior leadership have created, are the position of Dr. Frankenstein within their own companies is sort of what you're saying. Yeah, you know, it's um, once we're reminded of uh, young Frankenstein and uh, the, the moment where uh, Dr. Frankenstein says, you know, whatever you do, don't let me out. I'm going to go in with the monster. And so then he starts screaming, let me out, let me out. But, he's, you know, he's stuck right. in with the monster. Right. And the management of these companies at this point is they're stuck in the room with the monster they've created, which is a workforce that expects to be listened to for its political views. So, for example, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, they now have a new union. It's, it's, it's fairly small at this point, but there's a union that they're not going after pay raises or 
new benefits, but rather they're um, expecting the company to pay attention to what they want to work on and what they don't want to work on. In other words, it's about a union at the uh, tech company being in a position to say what the tech company can work on and can not work on, which is really a way of saying, you know, how to disadvantage political people we don't approve of or institutions we don't approve of um, by taking away from them or not working on them so, the software we disapprove of. So, so with, with those sort of volatile environments at these big tech companies, that the question becomes, are there substitutes? If you can't rely on these big tech companies that may be have the most expertise, may have the best products in terms of cloud services, some are there substitutes that are more reliable and just in terms of political stability so you won't have to deal with this potential threat? You know, I think this is going to be something that's a real tension, which is the Pentagon, on one hand, you know, if they're dealing with traditional defense contractors, they're working with professionals who know the business they're in and are comfortable with the business they're in, the business of war fighting, of being in the lethality business, of killing people. And yet the Pentagon sort of sees the top talent for technology being at these companies like Google and and Microsoft and Amazon Web Services, and they want to tap into that talent. But unfortunately, a lot of baggage comes with tapping into that talent as opposed to the traditional defense contractors. So we need uh, Raytheon to develop a cloud services department. Uh, apparently is, is perhaps is what you're saying could be and um, it's definitely one of these things where there are a lot of people in the pentagon who are concerned and um, you know i think you'll be hearing this more this issue of security of supply how secure are you if amazon or google is in, tra- in charge of the, your supply of information technology um, can you count on them? Will that supply be available to you when you need it? Um, is it really a good idea to outsource um, things that uh, you desperately need uh, in the case of a real shooting war? Important questions from Eric Felton, correspondent for the Real Clear Invest- for RealClearInvestigations.com, also the James Beard award-winning author of How Is Your Drink? Eric, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show, and we close out uh, the week uh, remembering the passing announced today of Hammerin' Hank Aaron, the real Major League Baseball home run king. You remember number 715 to pass Babe Ruth? If, even if you didn't, weren't alive at the time, you should remember this historic call by Vince Scully. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. Number 715 at Fulton County Stadium, April 8th, 1974. Off. Do you remember? Al Downing, that's correct. L, uh, L, uh, the... Uh, Dodgers at the time, obviously, Vince Scully calling it. Uh, and uh, that sent uh, 
Hank Aaron to uh, the status of home run king. Right. Barry Bonds technically has more, but I think we know who the real home run king is. Uh, Hank Aaron, just a, an unbelievable career. People forget he wasn't just a home run hitter. He was a great hitter. Th- career, 300-plus average. 20-time All-Star. 20-time All-Star. Uh, played 21 seasons between the Milwaukee and Atlanta Braves. Also, interesting note, because of a recent uh, decision by Major League Baseball, a proper one. So Hank Aaron originally signed to play in the Negro League. I think it was the Indianapolis team in the Negro League. Played for a few months. Uh, and he, by the time he retired, he was the last player in Major League Baseball who had been on a Negro League roster. And recently, Major League Baseball, this is just in the last few weeks, finally included Negro League statistics as official statistics for the records of players like Hank Aaron, as well they should. Um, so just a, it's just it's it's great. He was great. And, um, you know, and he, he recalls I, I know Hank Aaron talked about uh, some of the racism that he endured as he would go from town to town chasing Babe Ruth's record as he closed in on it and then, you know, eclipsed it by 41 homers. He ended up with 755, remember? Um, but I, I just, um, I don't know. He wasn't hyper-political uh, as far as I recall in interviews he gave subsequent to his playing career. I just always thought he carried himself with such dignity and um, rose above some of the ugliness he had to endure, much like Jackie Robinson did. Uh, so it's just, um, I don't know. I think he represents sort of, uh, uh, America getting better over the course of his lifetime, uh, over the course of the last, uh, 40 years since he hit that 715th home run, 46 years now, almost 47. Uh, and, um, I don't know. You, we've, it seems like we've made so much progress since that time. And yet things are more contentious racially than they ever were. Uh, maybe we need um, people that are cultural icons in 2021 America to um, represent themselves as as well and as productively as Hank Aaron represented himself, both as a player and subsequently. Thanks for joining us for another week of the program. Please continue to stay informed so you can be courageous and we can live free and have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. This is the Dan Proft Show.